0: right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 19 is where we're at today as we're continuing through our series in uh, the the book of 1 Samuel, um, studying through it verse by verse and just traveling through this amazing book. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, there's probably one in front of you there in one of the pews, or you can open up your smartphone or tablet to the YouVersion Bible app. And follow along there as well, um, and so uh, so you make sure that you get, you can do that. Um, all right. 1 Samuel 19 is where we're going to be. My name is Cody. I'm the pastor here at Redemption. It's awesome to be able to serve you in the scriptures. I look forward to our time every week of opening God's word and seeing what he has for us. And uh, just I think we said this a couple weeks ago, but I hope that what you're expecting is to hear from the Lord today, because that's really what we're gathered here to do, is to really hear what God has to say to us through his word. So 1 Samuel 19, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 together today. In World War II... Germany was, uh, the German military was under the control of Adolf Hitler. And uh, in the in beginning in 1934, one of the things that they added to their oath, in, it included unconditional obedience. That, that's one of the things that they added in their military oath. So that they would, they would um, not only commit themselves to, you know, doing whatever, you know, a military would do, but that they would do it with unconditional obedience. And, and we see, looking back at history where that led, that Hitler had some pretty heinous things in mind for that unconditional obedience. And in that, insubordination in the German military was harshly punished. At least 15,000 soldiers were executed for desertion and another 50,000 for minor acts of some sort of insubordination. So, so they were really on top of this. They wanted to make sure that if you did not obey even the smallest order, you understood that that was taking your life into your own hands. And so through this, fear and manipulation drove these soldiers to become Hitler's murderous force uh, through the Holocaust, uh, murdering so many people, including six million Jews. And many of the soldiers, they justified themselves as simply obeying orders, right? They were given orders. Someone above them in the chain of command said, you have to do this. And so they carried out those orders. Um, Now, here's the thing. Authority can demand obedience but it cannot dictate right and wrong. And that, that's sort of where we find ourselves in First Samuel 19. There's a big shift in First Samuel 19 in the narrative here, and we see that Saul begins using his authority in a different kind of a way, but authority cannot dictate right and wrong. So here's our big idea as we look at First Samuel 19, 1 through 10 together. It's this, standing for right and against wrong takes supernatural conviction and courage. That if you're going to do that, if you're going to stand against wrong and you're going to stand for what's right, that you can't just rely on your own courage or some sort of thing within you or this uh, amount of testosterone that you've been able to foster or whatever, that that's not going to be the thing that's going to get you to stand in the face of, of evil. We've got to rely on the Lord in those moments. And so that's, that's really what we're going to be looking at together today. First Samuel 19, 1 through 10. So let's go ahead and read those verses together. And then we'll go back through and uh, we'll break it down. 1 Samuel 19.1 says this, Now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. So Jonathan told David, that, that saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you, therefore please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe, I will tell you. Thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against him, excuse me, against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good toward you. For he took his life in his hands, and he killed the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then do you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan and swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all the things, all these things. So Jonathan uh, brought David to Saul, and he was in, the pre- in his presence as in times past. And there was war again. And David went out and fought against the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow, and they fled from him. Now the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing music with his hand. Then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away from Saul's presence. And so he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word together today, we ask for your presence to be among us, that your spirit would fill this place, that God, you would give us understanding, that Lord, you would show us what it is that you have to say to us, that God, we would see you magnified in your scriptures, that we would understand the things that you're calling us to, and Lord, that we would not just see them as great examples, but that we would see them as opportunities for us to uh, yield more to you that your presence might find more of a room and place within us. So Jesus, would you transform us as your people today to become more like you? Would you call us deeper into those waters of, uh, of following hard after you? And that, God, you would do your work among your people. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to break this section down, verses 19, 1 through 10, into three different parts together today. Okay, all right. Verses 1 through 3, the first piece, a warning given. Verses 4 through 6, a word given. And then verses 7 through 10, a weapon given. Uh, now, the, the concepts of right and wrong, of good and evil, when, we're, when we start thinking about those ideas, just in general terms... Typically, we kind of think of them as sort of arbitrary ideas that are sort of randomly selected, but that's not true. They're not they're not randomly selected by God. It's not like God was with Moses at the, the at Mount Sinai with the Ten, Ten Commandments and they're you know they're sort of deciding what's it going to be. And so, okay, murder comes up and God flips a coin and you know he's like, all right, Moses, murder is bad. Write it. Uh, okay, let's try adultery now. You know, and flip the coin like that's just not. That is not the way that morality is determined. It's not the flip of a coin. It's not arbitrary. Sometimes we even can start thinking that maybe God took all the stuff that we're naturally drawn toward, and he said, that's bad, just to mess with us. He's like, I'm just going to mess with you guys. Whatever you want, that's evil. Uh, That's just... That's just not true. That's not the way that God has determined good and evil. It's, it's, here's the thing. Right and wrong are either in line with or in rebellion against God's nature. That's how right and wrong are determined. The fact that we're drawn away after what's wrong doesn't mean that God is bad or that he's weird or crazy or just trying to mess with us. It means that we're fallen and we're drawn toward the wrong things. That's what that means. You see, our desire for sin, it's because of our fallenness, not his design. We can't say, well, God, you made me this way, and so I just, I have full reign to act this way. I can't say, I can be a jerk and just be mean to people because I got red hair. Like, that, that doesn't work. You can't, you also can't say it because you're Italian, okay? That's just, so it's not just redheads, it's you, Italian jerks too. Anyway, um... So in that, God is the standard. His nature is the standard. Does that make sense? That it's not this arbitrary thing, it's actually who the Lord is. And and because God's nature is the standard, that's why Jesus can boil the entire Old Testament down to two things. Remember that in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40, it says this, Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The first, this is the first and greatest commandment and a second is equally important love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets, that, that's sort of a euphemism for the whole Old Testament. The, the entire law and the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Basically, if you can do those... You've got everything else taken care of. And so the, the, the thing that we're aiming at here is Jesus boils it all down to these two things. Because if you know and love God, then you will know what he loves, and then you'll love what he loves. Does that make sense? That's what he's drawing us into. It's not this arbitrary thing. Good and evil have a standard, and it's up to us to decide if we will submit to the Lord or rebel against the Lord. And both of those decisions have consequences. If I'm going to submit to God, there are consequences to that decision. And if I'm going to rebel against God, there are consequences to that decision. I don't get to get out of this apart from enduring those consequences. So let's look at this first part together, a warning given, verses 1 through 3. Look back at verse 1, it says this. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. Right Now this is uh, this is where things, they sort of get... A little bit more crazy. If you remember last time in Matthew, excuse me, Matthew, 1 Samuel chapter 18 verses, verse 29, we saw that David becomes the enemy of Saul continually, right? That, that's the moment where Saul goes past the point of no return, and now David is, has become Saul's enemy continually, and it doesn't take long, we see right here in chapter 19, for Saul's personal plan to become government policy, Right? He has a meeting with his government officials and he says, David is public enemy number one, he must be executed. We've got to take this guy out. Now Saul, he's in an official position that's been ordained by God. He's been given power and authority by the Lord. But here's the reality, that, that simple truth that he's in a position of authority, that doesn't exempt him from sin. Right? It doesn't even exempt him from using his position and his authority and his power in an abusive kind of a way. Romans 13, 1-2 says this, Everyone must submit to governing authorities. For all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God instituted. And they will be punished. So Jonathan... And these these officials in in Saul's uh, uh, government structure, they're in a hard spot, aren't they? I mean, maybe they don't have Romans 13 to look at, but the principle still remains, God is the one who puts Saul where he belongs. He carries God's authority, and now he's giving out this command, he's giving out this decree, he's saying that this guy, he is a menace, and he has got to be dealt with. We need to kill David. They're in a rough spot. They're in a spot of, what what do I do with with this kind of a thing? You see, Jonathan's situation is doubly difficult because Saul isn't just his king. He's also his father. He has this position where Saul is in authority over him. And basically what Saul wants to do is he wants to say to Jonathan, Hey, use your influence. Get close to David. Betray him and murder him. That's what I want you to do. Let's, Let's do it that way. Now, while there are probably some men who would have murdered David for no other reason than Saul said so, the truth is that most people really actually love David. Remember that from chapter 18, verse 5? That all of Saul's court, all the people, people just loved who David was. And he was growing, uh, the way, even the way that uh, um, chapter 18 closes, he's growing in this uh, high esteem throughout all of the people. It's, it's likely that the way that this happened isn't just this simple decree. I mean, how do you get people to go along with you in this way? How how do you get people to do that? How do you get people to shift their opinion like that? Well, it's very probable that Saul spent a lot of time criticizing and demonizing David. Just, Just talking badly about him while he wasn't there just saying things that were, that were not true and assigning impure motives to David. I know why he did that. I know what he was thinking. I know what his, his intention was. I know what was going on with him. Maybe exaggerating little flaws within him. You know, nobody's perfect, even though David's trying to do really well. And it says that he, he operated with great wisdom before God's people. Every time he went out, he didn't do everything exactly right. And so everything that was a little off, it would be over-exaggerated by Saul. And, and he, would spin and twist even good things to seem as though they were bad to create this false narrative so that when he gives this command you guys should kill David then the people are like well you're probably right he's actually he's actually a really bad guy that that's the way that it typically happens and and maybe you've experienced something like that Maybe, you, maybe you've been a part of that where someone is trying to twist your mind and, and opinion about somebody else or maybe that's happened to you where someone is just trying to, to, to you know, come, come down upon you and create a false narrative about you and it's a terribly evil kind of a thing that takes place. You see, but Saul didn't consider one very important detail. Look at the end of verse one. It says this, but Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. He forgot about it. Or he didn't consider that extremely important detail that David and Jonathan were really great friends. They had a very close friendship. And so what does Jonathan do? He seeks to save David's life. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says this, so Jonathan told David saying, my father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. And I'll go find out and uh, I'll go and stand beside my father in a field where you are, and I'll speak to my father about you. That, then what I observe, I'll tell you. You see, th- there's this, this thing, this delight within Jonathan toward David where he is, he's, he's this very close friend with him, and the, this reality is that he's going to try to save David's life. Now, this reality isn't just true in terms of Jonathan and David. This is true of you. This is true of me, that there is this son of the king who was willing to greatly delight in us, that Jesus greatly delights in you. And maybe that's the only reason you came to church today was to hear those words, that Jesus greatly delights in you. Maybe that's a hard one for you to grasp. That that feels weird. Maybe for you, you're like, "Ah, I mean, maybe he tolerates me. Maybe he puts up with me, you know, but greatly delights? I don't know about that. No, that's, that's just not true. That's, that's the lie of the enemy. Jesus greatly delights in you. He, he, he thinks so highly of you. His love is so over-the-top crazy for you that he would gladly and willingly go to the cross for you to take your place, to pay for your sin. Not just us, you, me. Think about this, that when Jesus was on that cross, you were on his mind. Not, oh my goodness, this, this person is so wicked and so heinous and I can't believe. No, but I love you so much. I, I'll take this for you. I will, I'll, I'll endure this for you. I will endure separation from the Father that you might experience that unity with the Father, that you can have my place, Jesus says. What an amazing thing. Matthew 13, Jesus says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field and in his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Okay, okay leave that verse up for a minute. I wanna talk about this verse for a minute, okay? Think about, see the very beginning, what Jesus says? The kingdom of heaven is like, okay, he's giving us an analogy. He's saying, I want you to understand what the kingdom of heaven is like because it's not like, the, the things that you understand on earth. And so Jesus says, if you're going to grasp my kingdom, here's an analogy. This isn't a string of different analogies that Jesus uses. And this is one of them. And he says, it's like a guy, he's out in a field and he happens upon this really awesome treasure. And so what does he do? Well, he hides it again. And then he goes and he sells everything he has because he wants to buy the field so he can own the treasure. This, Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like that. So we have got to understand that when Jesus was going to the cross, he was giving everything, everything he had. He laid it all down. His right to be worshipped as God, his glory, his praise, his honor, his, his comforts, everything gone. And then he's murdered by his own people. Why? Because that was the purchase price of the earth, the field, and you're the treasure. He wanted to get you. Jesus didn't die for the dirt. Jesus didn't, if he wants a planet, he could just make a new one, right? It's not that, it's it's you. He wanted you. You're the treasure, and he gave his all to purchase you. So stop trying to give Jesus a reason to love you. Stop trying. Just receive his love. You You don't need to give him a reason. You know what? There isn't a reason. There's no reason in you he should love you. Right, And that's probably why you struggle with receiving his love. But here's the truth. All the reasons are in him. All the reasons are in him. His love for you isn't because of you. It's because he's so great, because he's so glorious, because he is so amazing. And so too, just as Jonathan delights in David, so too Jesus delights in you. Now, Jonathan does more than just not do the wrong thing. right? He could have just said, you know what? I don't really want to get in the middle of all this. Saul, Dad, you got this weird thing with David. I don't know what your deal is. David, you're my friend, but man, I'm just, you know, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna check out of this one. You guys figure out your issue, figure out your stuff. He does more than that. He doesn't just not do the wrong, he takes action to do what's right. He actually warns David. We we see in this section he helps David. He does some recon for David to get some information for David. Jonathan just can't stay out of it because it's wrong to stay neutral when biblical morality demands that you act. Right? When, it, when biblical morality demands you act then, and you don't do anything, you become just as guilty as the one doing the wrong thing. Here's how James says it, 4, James 4.17. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Right? It's, it's not just sins that we commit. There are things that we omit, and that's sin as well, that the lines are drawn on, on both sides. Not only do we see a, warn, uh, a warning given... <laughs> Uh, but we also now see a word given. A warning is given to David, but now a word is given to Saul. Verse 4 Thus, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servants and against David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his works have been very great, or very good toward you. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine. And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then would you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? You see, Jonathan displays here tremendous courage. More than not helping Saul or secretly helping David, Jonathan goes further to say, I'm actually going to try to sway my father's mind. I'm going to try to change his mind about this whole thing. That, that Jonathan takes up David's cause as if it was his own. He shows a loyalty to David that many of us have never considered giving somebody. That that we would actually take up their cause as ours. That 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 we would have this kind of relationship with them. And and it's one of the things that I just I want to encourage you with this thought. It's something that we talked about this morning as we we gather every Sunday morning uh, for prayer at, at 9:30. You're always welcome to come. But one of the things that we do is sometimes we'll just kind of talk about a, an idea uh, during, prayer, uh, during our prayer time. And one of the thoughts that came up today was that the church has got to be more than a place you go to for some learning, right? This isn't a school, right? If we, te- if we treat the church like a school, then you come in, you sit, I tell you some things, and you go, Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, that's, that's interesting. And you write it down, and oh, I'm smarter now, and you leave, and that's it. That's not church, that's not church. That's part of what church is, is that we, do, we learn, we grow in the scriptures, but relationships are what church is all about. That if we don't actually do what the scriptures say, if we're not part of a people, if we just go to a place, then we are missing what Jesus brought us into as the church, that we actually need relationships. And I want to encourage you, your best friends should be in the church. The people you hang out with should be in the church. When, you, when you're like, hey, I want to go and uh, go to the lake, you should say, hey, I wanna, I'm going to call someone from the church to go with me. We're going to go out to eat. Who should go with us? Well, I'm going to invite someone from the church because they're my friends and I want to be around them and I want to spend time with them because we do more than sit and learn. We actually have a relationship together. Relationship matters a lot. It's, it's a huge thing for us to be able to have if you don't have a relationship. And it's just a, listen, if you want good teaching and preaching, there are thousands of better preachers online. You can find, like, you don't need to come and listen to a redhead yell at you for an hour, right? Like, that's just, that's ridiculous. If it's just teaching, then what are we doing, right? We can do, we can do differently. We can do more. It's not, it's not that the Bible teaching doesn't matter. We do this every week. We open it. We teach it. We spend a lot of time on Bible teaching, but it's not the only thing, right? There's other things to add as well. And so how do you do that? Well, you give the kind of loyalty that you want to have. That's how you get friends. If you want to have friends, be a friend. That's how you'll get friends. David Guzik says this, you can't measure a person's support by what they say about you to your face. You measure their support by how they back you when you're not around. And that's what Jonathan's doing. David is nowhere around, but he's uh, there before his father saying, Father, you got the wrong idea about David. We we can take a lot. We can learn a lot about friendship, loyalty, and courage from Jonathan because we tend to abandon relationships far too quickly for far too little. Here's Here's a thought. There is no enduring relationship without hardship. Think about any relationship that you have. That's actually a great relationship. That's not that shallow relationship where you don't really know each other and it doesn't really matter and you just talk about news, weather, sports, that stuff. But enduring relationships, great relationships, they only happen through hardship, through struggle, through perseverance. If we just give up all the time, then we're just gonna be a lonely people. We're never going to actually be able to engage in a relationship that way. And Jonathan, what does he do? He confronts Saul. He doesn't, he doesn't just confront Saul with, hey, this might not be the best idea. He goes for the jugular. Look at verse 4. Jonathan spoke uh, well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king sin. Right. He, he doesn't just go to the king and say, nah, maybe, maybe we should just you know, ignore David or anything like that. He says, don't sin Against David, this is this is an amazing thing. Jonathan directly points to Saul's desire as sinful, and there are three reasons he gives. Verse four uh, is the first one. David hasn't done anything wrong. Saul, why do you want to kill the guy? He hasn't done anything wrong. David hasn't sinned whatsoever. So if you go after him, it's sin for you. But also, uh, verse five, David's actually done what's right. Remember the Philistine. Remember the guy you didn't want to fight, Dad. David killed him, and you rejoiced when he did it. Remember, that wasn't that long ago. Remember where we were. Come to your senses. It's like he's shaking him by his shoulders and saying, Dad, wake up. You're, you're diving into something that you shouldn't be uh, be engaging in or entertaining in your life whatsoever. And then finally, the logical conclusion, look at, at the end of verse 5. He says, when you saw it, you rejoiced. Why then? Will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? The logical conclusion is your desire is sinful. If there's no reason because he hasn't done anything wrong and all he's done is served you and done well, then why are you against him? The only logical conclusion is it's your own sin. It's your own pride. But here's the thing that's crazy. Saul probably thought David had, done, had wronged him. He probably thought, David. no, you don't understand, Jonathan. David has done something against me. David has sinned against me. But that was only Saul's envy, his pride, and his self-preservation that would say such a thing. John Corson, in his uh, life application commentary, says this, This all points to a far greater prince than Jonathan, the Prince of Peace, our Savior Jesus Christ, who pleads our case to the King of Kings, 1 John 2.1. Jonathan pled for David on the base of David's works, That he slew Goliath. Jesus, on the other hand, pleads our case, not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of his work for us. That that he goes, Jesus goes to the Father and we don't receive the wrath of God that we should receive against our sin. Why? Because of Jesus' work for us on our behalf. You see, you and I have a firm and solid standing before God because of the work of Jesus. Not because of us, not because of our greatness, not because we've done something. I've, I've walked so many old ladies across the street. I've donated so much money. My church attendance record is spotless. I've got 50 gold stars on it. Uh, you know, I've, I've adopted all of the dogs from the animal shelter. I don't get any from the puppies, uh, you know, the puppy farm. I, those are bad people. You're good if you, you know, whatever. You know, whatever it happens to be, there's whatever things we do to try to build ourselves up and say, this is, I deserve God's, God's grace, God's love. No, we don't. If you go to God on the basis of deserve, you know what you deserve? You know what I deserve? Hell, that's it. I deserve nothing but God's eternal wrath against my wickedness but Jesus. But Jesus pleads my case. But Jesus takes my place. But Jesus gives me his standing before the Father. So verse 6, so Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. So, so you know, some commentators, they see this as Saul just going through the motions to look reasonable. Uh, but it seems to me, as I, as I kind of look at it and look at the context of everything, it seems to me like this is, it's genuine. I mean, as genuine as he can be. It's, the, it's a genuine declaration in this moment. You see, God, what it seems to me to be is that God used Jonathan's integrity, his honor, his love, and his loyalty to bring conviction upon Saul's heart about how he had none of these things. And he realized, gosh, I'm I'm going too far. And this is a critical moment for Saul. You see, this moment of conviction coming upon him, will it lead him to repentance? Or will he just try really hard to be a better man? Which which one's he going to do? The the track record for Saul isn't good. He just tries hard and blames somebody else. That's what he does. Instead of coming to the Lord in repentance. You see, all of Jonathan's good attributes, they're not great because Jonathan's great. They're gifts from God. It's the submission of Jonathan to the Lord that produced those things within his life, and so too it is with us. That anything that could be said that's good about me, it's all Jesus' fault. And anything that's wrong, it's all my fault. I don't get to claim any of the any of the uh, you know the the glory for the good things that God has done. It's all it's all Him, it's all His His character and His nature and His presence in my life. So what will Saul do? Is he going to repent or is he going to just try to try to shift some things around? It's it is interesting as well. Just one, one aside. In this section, notice what what he says there uh, at the end of verse six. As the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. It's interesting. Uh, Saul doesn't say, I won't kill him. He says, David won't be killed. I, I'm sure that's what he meant. Saul, what Saul meant was, I won't kill him, uh, even though he's going to go back on that like within two verses. Um, but the, the truth that's happening here is he's actually speaking reality. He's sort of prophesying, if you will, in such a way, David won't be killed. Not for lack of Saul's trying, not even for lack of the Philistines trying to kill him, but David won't be killed. God would preserve his life. It's kind of like, uh, I think it was uh, Ananias in uh, Acts chapter 4, somewhere around there, how he prophesies, or no, it's, it's in Matthew. Uh, he prophesies about how Jesus, it's expedient that, that one man would die for everybody. He doesn't have a clue that he's actually prophesying about the death of Jesus on behalf of the entire world. All right, thirdly, not only a warning given and a word given, but now we see that there's a weapon given, that David is receiving a weapon from Saul. Verse eight, uh, or excuse me, verse seven, then Jonathan called David and Jonathan told him all, the thing, all these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul and he was in his presence as in times past. It, it all goes back to normal. It seems like everything's good. Saul's humility has put them on the road of reconciliation and it's a beautiful moment of honoring the Lord. That, that, that here, it's, it's like everything's coming back together again the way that it was. And everything is the way that it was in, as in times past. But verse 8, and there was war again. See that? There was war again. Now, this is true, not just physically in that the Philistines are attacking, but there's a spiritual war that's taking place here as well. There's a, there's a war that rises up again. Both of these enemies, the Philistines and the devil, are at war with David. That's who they're at war with. The Philistines are against David. The, the, um, the spiritual war is against David. It's, the spiritual war isn't against Saul. Saul is the pawn that's being manipulated against David, right? Saul Saul's not in the war. He's just being used. If he was in the fight, then he would be fighting uh, in this way. That's why it says in Ephesians chapter 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Your fight isn't against that person. Your fight is actually a spiritual fight. That, that's what is being said to us here as well. Now David, he's not at war with Saul. Saul's at war with David because he's being manipulated by Satan as a pawn. Verse uh, verse 8, so there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines. And I, I don't know why, but I hear Thor's voice when I read this, and struck them with a mighty blow. Like, that's just what, it's like, yes, I like that. That's great. All right, anyway, uh, and so he won. Uh, and uh, And then Let's see, and they fled from him. All right, so now, verse 9, now, notice now, the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. It was at that time. It was then. You see, uh, sadly, the reconciliation didn't last long. As soon as David gets any recognition that Saul believes belongs to him, David becomes the enemy again. As soon as that takes place, Proverbs 14.30 says this, a sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. This is Saul, right? Don't you just see Saul there in Proverbs? That his heart is not sound. And because his heart is not sound, there's no life coming out of the guy. There's just rottenness and decay and evil spilling out of him. Why? Envy. You see, it's not about David and the Philistines. It's not even about David and Saul. It's about Saul's glory and God's glory. That's the issue. That's the spiritual battle that's taking place. And envy is rotting Saul's insides. Everything David does is for the glory of God. Why does David fight Philistines? Not because he hates Philistines. It's because it's for God's glory. Why does does David want to sing praise and and play musical instruments? Not because he's like, hey, I'm in the band. I'm super cool. No, no. he wants God to be glorified. That's, That's why he does what he does. But everything Saul does is for the glory of Saul. There's a massive contrast here that David does what he does for the glory of God, but Saul does what he does for the glory of Saul. And if Saul isn't glorified, he's angry. He's angry. That's what comes out of him. As Saul entertains envy, what does it do? Well, verse verse 9, it opens the door to spiritual attack. It opens the door to spiritual attack. I I wonder if many times the kinds of spiritual attacks that you and I receive, the stuff that comes against us, it's because we're entertaining thoughts that we shouldn't be entertaining. That the enemy, yes, is pressing an attack, but we open the door wider to invite the attack to come in. And if we would just shut the door, we wouldn't experience a lot of those kinds of attacks. You see, Saul entertains envy and it opens the door to to a demonic twisting of his mind that is manipulated deeper into sinful depravity. Saul goes further into this depravity. Why? Because he opened the door. Notice what happens there in verse 9. The distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house. Notice this. With his spear in his hand. Anybody see a problem brewing? Anybody? This is for sure. I sense something bad is about to take place. Like Saul, bro, you don't have a good track record with spears, right? This is, maybe it's not a good idea for you to have a spear nearby when David's playing some music because of this distressing spirit that's going on. Perhaps that's, you know, that's the way that this should go. Maybe, maybe we should think about this. He, he doesn't really have a good track record with this. And maybe, you know, Saul could argue, you know, but spears aren't bad. Spears are good. I mean, look at all these other guys around here. They've all got spears. They like spears too. I mean, spears win wars, and spears are, are, are good tools, you know. The other guys have them. I, I have the freedom to have a spear, so I should have some spears. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold on to a spear. See, many of us take this same foolish justification about the things that are vices for us. Maybe they're not sinful, but for you they are. I I bet you there were a bunch of guys standing around, a bunch of soldiers that had spears. They didn't have trouble throwing spears at David to try to murder the guy. Saul was the one that did. You see, we do this, we justify, justify this foolishness, and then we wonder why sin controls us. It's, it's something that that has to be removed from our lives that there's a there's a place at which discipline has to come in to where we say yeah that's maybe it's not a bad thing but it's a bad thing for me and so I'm going to draw a line way before the cliff right if you put up a fence where the cliff is and you go over the fence you know what happens you die right that's that's a bad place to put the fence if you have trouble falling over, cl- over fences. So put the fence way back away from the edge of the cliff so that if you fall over, you go, oh, man, I should come to myself. That wasn't sin, but it's leading me there, you know? It, it, it gets you that opportunity to sort of come to your senses. David Guzik says this, Friends, please understand the throwing of the spear in verse 10 didn't just happen. Saul was unprepared to handle temptation." unprepared to handle spiritual attack, and he had the opportunity to sin close at hand. Most anybody is going to trip up under those circumstances. Stop setting yourself up for failure and wondering why you fail, right? Set yourself up for success. I'll use food because it's real easy. Throw the Oreos away, right? Like, why are they in your closet if you're tempted with them, right? Like, Okay, now apply that in lots of ways. Okay, the Holy Spirit can. I don't even need to name your sin. The Holy Spirit can convict you of those things. Saul knew his temptation was to murder David, and he knew it was sin, and he made a vow to never do it again. Then why is a spear near him at all? So what's your spear? What's your issue? What's your thing? What, What what are you what are you tempted toward? What what is drawing you in? Do you do you really want freedom? I mean, honestly, when you really evaluate yourself, do you really want freedom from that thing? You got to ask Jesus for three things. Number one, you got to ask Jesus for forgiveness in repentance. Right? It's it's not just it's not just I'm sorry. Oh gosh, Lord, you caught me. Oh, they caught me. Or whatever it is, Lord, I more than just sorrow. Second Corinthians seven says that worldly sorrow just leads you into more sin. But godly sorrow leads you away from those things. It leads you to repentance. And so it's more than sorrow. It's actually changing course. It's actually turning away. It's turning your back on that and saying, I'm not going that way anymore. That that door, that road is closed. Number one, forgiveness and repentance. Number two, got to ask Jesus for strength in holiness. That, That you can't just rely on your willpower to get you through. You've done that before, right? You relied on your willpower. Where did that get you? Back in the same problem. That's where it got you. It got you right back into the same issue, right back into the same thing that was going on. So stop relying on your willpower. You need Holy Spirit power. That's how we're going to move forward. And then the third thing, wisdom in practice. Not, well, I just hope so. I hope this doesn't happen again. Stop walking down the road with the hole in it if you fall in the hole every time, right? Like if you you know the hole is there and you've fallen in it 18 times, don't walk that way. Try a different way. How about that? Let's not walk down that road any longer. God, give me the wisdom to be able to know how to structure things in discipline. And so what happens here? Verse 10, and Saul sought to pin David uh, to the wall with the spear, but he, he slipped away from Saul's presence and he drove the spear into the wall. Notice the end there. So David fled and escaped that night. David fled and escaped that night. This, this actually is where David now goes into exile. David leaves the palace, and he will not return for 10 to 20 years, depending on who you, which commentary you read. It's not like he's gone for a week vacation. He's gone into exile. He's going to be living in the wilderness. He's going to be running for his life for 10 to 20 years now. And he won't come back until Saul is dead and David becomes the king. This is the moment that he leaves. What a crazy thing. You see, there will be people in positions over you in your life that will try to use your loyalty and their authority to draw you into sinful situations. It's exactly what Saul was doing. Saul was looking to draw Jonathan and his men into sinful situations with his authority and also with his position. Because of, because of their loyalty. And if your plan is to try to make the right decision in the moment, then you have failed before you start it, right? Thinking you're gonna make the right decision in the moment when sin comes is just not a smart thing to do. We've gotta make the decision beforehand. It's like in, in uh, um, Daniel chapter one where it says that Daniel purposed in his heart that he wouldn't sin against the Lord. That means that he made the decision before he ever got into the situation. That he was, he was, already, he was already there. You see, if you fail to plan, then you plan to fail. That's as simple as it gets. And Jonathan's great secret was that he was submitted to the Lord above all. He had predetermined that he will honor God above all. When Saul could have said, listen, there's in the Ten, look in Exodus chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments, it says, honor your father and your mother. Now go kill David. What Jonathan could have said is, if you read the very next commandment, it also says don't murder. Right? Like there are there is a hierarchy of honoring God above all that has to be predetermined in our lives so that when we come into situations that tempt us into sin or people try to manipulate us into these kinds of things, we don't fall for it. Philippians chapter two verses three through five says this don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others, be humble, thinking of others better than yourselves. Don't look out for your, only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Think about this as we, as we close. Think about that phrase at the very end. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Anybody else with an honest evaluation of their, themselves think, well, that one's out the window. How am I going to have the same attitude that Jesus had? I I don't have that attitude. The longer I live, the more I'm around, the more I engage with things, the more I realize I just don't have that attitude. You see, in these commands that that we have to don't be selfish, don't try to impress others, be humble, think of others better than yourselves, don't look out for your own interests, but also the interests of others, we have have this draw, this, this command, not to do things, but to see Jesus. That Jesus is the king. That he decides what's right and wrong. He's Lord, he's God, he's the one that determines this. And he says, these things are, are the way to go. He's the example. It's not just arbitrary, but he says, this is exactly how to do it. He, said, he says, look, look at my life, look at how I've, I've done this. But he's not just our example, he's also our supply. He's the one that gives us the ability to, to, to do it. Not just show us how, not just tell us how, but also to empower us to do so. And when we submit to Jesus... Here's what happens. He puts his character into us. He transforms us and makes us more like himself. So here's the question. Will you submit your life to Jesus? Will you, will you give that place of honor to him? Because the temptations are coming. The things, you don't, you have, you don't have a clue this week what's down the road for you. What, what's there, the, the traps that are being set by the enemy for you to fall into. You don't even know what they are. How are you gonna stand against them? Only if Christ in you is the hope of glory. Only if submission to Jesus is where you place your life. And so, so the question is, will you? Maybe for the first time you never have. And today you, you're understanding that Jesus' death is for you and that his blood was given and shed for you and you need to give your life to Jesus for the first time. Or maybe, maybe it's a, a, a reckoning, a coming back to Jesus and realizing, Jesus, I've, I've taken my life back in way too many ways. I've been trying to lead myself and try to figure this out for myself, and I need you to have that place of preeminence once again. So let's, let's submit to the Lord. Let's give our lives to Jesus and see what he might do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. God, thank you for the opportunity to open it together and to study it and to see what it is that you have to say. And we, just, we thank you so much for uh, your scriptures. that Lord, it's not just old stories about old dead guys. They really have nothing to do with life, but really, God, these are people very much like us in very similar situations to where we find ourselves. And so we pray that you would help us to be submitted to you, that Jesus, you are God, you are Lord, you are King, you are over all, and that we are submitted to you to go your way. So, Father, have your way among us and help us to glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.